The White House Chief of Staff is leaving. The president's being cagey about the reasons, but there were clear signs this was coming. The story today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Earlier this year, NPR's Texas-based correspondent John Burnett landed an exclusive interview with John Kelly. And even then, there were signs of a rupture with his boss. Coming up, John Burnett talks with us about a break long in the making. Also, the Victoria Advocate newspaper sues to stop former Congressman Blake Farenthold from collecting his paychecks. We'll hear why. And the Texas Ag Commissioner wants to let farmers grow hemp. All that and a whole lot more coming up today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's beginning to look a lot like you-know-what, at least in parts of the Lone Star State. Yes, it's Texas Standard Time on this December 10th. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. Pop quiz for this Monday. This city has received more snowfall this year than Detroit, Anchorage, Salt Lake City, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, or Denver. All right, if you guessed Lubbock, you'd be right on the mark. This weekend alone, 10 inches fell there. Just one inch off from the all-time December record. How about that? Texas Monthly reports nearby Littlefield recorded nine inches of white stuff. Abilene and Wichita Falls each got more than a dusting. Three inches, they say. Alas, with temps climbing back into the 50s, poor Frosty had to wave goodbye, saying, don't you cry, but you can bet we're keeping our eyes on the forecast for December 25th, so stay tuned. We'll have more on the weather coming up in the Texas Roundup. First, the big news over the weekend, an apparent shakeup at the White House. John Kelly, the person brought in last year to bring order to a West Wing in disarray, leaving on terms that can at best be described as strained. The announcement from the president came as he was departing D.C. for the Army-Navy football game in Philly. Here's what he said. This is the president speaking. John Kelly will be leaving. I don't know if I can say retired, the president cryptically told reporters, but he is a great guy. John Kelly will be leaving at the end of the year. That's what the president said. Kelly's departure had been rumored all week, but there's a certain Texas-based reporter who likely saw this coming long before most. He's NPR's John Burnett, who earlier this year scored a scoop with a rare one-on-one extended interview with Trump's chief of staff. John, thanks for taking a few minutes to join us here in the studio. Sure, David. This is kind of odd because you're a Texas-based reporter, as I think most of our listeners know. Right. How did you end up landing this terrific interview with uh, the chief of staff back in May? The radio god smiled on me, as we say, David. <laughs> um, I had known a General Kelly when he was our briefer during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Uh, I was embedded with the 1st Marine Division. And um, General John Kelly uh, w- uh, briefed the journalist with the headquarters battalion, and uh, uh, General Mattis, now the defense secretary, was leading the Marines on the, the road to Baghdad. So what did, when Kelly agreed to sit down with you and, and, and open up there, I guess you were in the West Wing, right? Right, right, we were in his office in the West Wing. Right? So so what did, what, a, what an opportunity. What did Kelly tell you about his job uh, in particular? Well, um, you know, he came in um, in July 31st of 2017, so he was there. Um, he's been there since then, and there have been consistent rumors that uh, he and Trump were not getting along, that relations were strained. And so, obviously, um, I asked him about that, and this is what he said. There's times of great frustration, um, 
mostly because of the stories I read about myself or others that I, I think the world of, which is just about everyone that works at the complex, and wonder if it's worth it um, to be subjected to that. But then I, uh, then I grow up and uh, suck it up. I asked him uh, how this compares to uh, a 56-year career in the Marine Corps uh, when he, uh, he finished as the, the head of the commander of uh, Southcom out of Miami. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, working in the White House is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, bar Good none. Night. Good night. Did, did you, what do you think was the source of that exasperation? Was it something about the relationship between the two men, something about Donald Trump himself, something about, as he was suggesting, mm-hmm. the media spotlight, maybe? Well, it was a lot of things, David. Um, I mean, in that clip, obviously, he wasn't used to the fishbowl of uh, of the White House, where uh, you know every single breath uh, they take is examined um, in public. But also, uh, he grew increasingly frustrated working with the president. We know that uh, Kirsten Nielsen, who is a protege of John Kelly's. Um, she was with him at uh, when he was Secretary of Homeland um, Homeland Security, and right. now she is Secretary of Homeland right, Security. Right. Trump ha- is beat up on her uh, mercilessly. He has humiliated her in front of the cabinet. He's blamed her for not stopping the immigrants uh, from coming across the southern border. And uh, we understand Kelly uh, has been angered at the president um, picking on her. Uh, along with um, you know lots of other issues that have that have come up, but uh, to his credit, uh, General Kelly, uh, we understand, was able to um, to convince the president to continue to support um, the NATO alliance and also not to pull troops out of South Korea. So now let me ask you then, as as someone who has been following this for some time, do you, do you have a sense that Kelly was at least modestly successful in bringing about some order to the White House during his? rather short tenure. I mean, we're talking about he's the third <laughs> chief of staff in as right. many years. I mean, you know, that's that's really open to debate. I mean, he was they said he was going to instill discipline and order in a chaotic White House. And I mean, we've both seen what it looks like uh, from the outside. Um, we also understand that he was supposed to be an adult in the room uh, to keep the president from, uh, you know, getting us into World War Three. So perhaps on that count, uh, he's been successful. Uh, we do know that he was supposed to um, control the aides who could go in and out of the Oval Office uh, with impunity and, uh, you know, reportedly the president uh, influenced by the last person who spoke to him. So he, you know, he did bring that uh, type of order. But um, there's, you know, there's certainly been, uh, you know, the air uh, of disorder and chaos around this White House. Indeed, it's not clear that that's going away anytime soon because the man uh, that they thought would uh, be his successor says he doesn't want the gig either. Right. Changing the guard at the White House, John Burnett had an opportunity to speak one-on-one with outgoing Chief of Staff John Kelly. John, good to see you again. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes out for The Standard. You bet. Southeast Texas newspaper continues to fight what it says is the unlawful hiring of former Republican U.S. House Representative Blake Farenthold as a lobbyist for the Calhoun Port Authority. This past May, the Victoria Advocate sued the port, saying they violated the Texas Open Meetings Act when the port didn't notify the public their board would be meeting to consider Farenthold's hiring. Now, while another court considers whether the port did indeed violate the law, the paper 
wants an appeals court to try and stop Ferenthold from getting his paychecks. Chris Cobbler is editor and publisher of The Victoria Advocate. Chris, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. So what is your paper currently requesting from an appeals court, and uh, tell us why. Sure, sure. Um, You know, we have a case in which a a congressman was hired illegally and is continuing to be paid $160,000 a year, or $13,333 a month. And they have so far, the port has produced no evidence of what he's doing, uh, despite our request. But so, now, let me un- let me understand something. You're you're asking the court to order the port authority not to pay the the ex congressman. Correct. We're asking that uh, until this suit is settled, right, we, either we win or lose, that he should have his money set aside in escrow or some other uh, setup like that, so that he could get his pay if the port wins this case and he was hired legally. Uh, but if he if this hiring was illegal, as we are fairly certain it was, then there's no reason the public should still be on the hook for his pay, the pay that he receives all this time while, uh, you know, the, the legal system, its wheels grind very slowly. So that that's the basis for this uh, latest appeal, and it uh, certainly has helped me hope that it will um, prompt the court to move more quickly on you this know, case, You know, I, I would understand if, if, if I mean, uh, if a citizens group or, you know, something like that had, had tried to do this, I mean, people who are represented by the, by the Port Authority uh, directly, but, you know, there are some pretty clear elements that have to be met if you're going to succeed uh, getting injunctive relief. I mean, for instance, the burden's going to be on y'all to establish that without it, that you, the Victoria Advocate, will sustain a, a probable, imminent, and irreparable injury. How are you going to make that case? Well, our, our attorney, John Griffin, is, uh, feels very confident about this latest uh, motion, and I leave it to him to argue the legal merits of it. But we feel like we've filed this all along on behalf of the public, and that's our standing. Uh, we, um, you know, The newspaper is concerned about representing the public and doing what's right for the public, and we want to uh, be sure in all of this that the public's, you know, right to know about a, a, a open meeting that in which a, a port hires a lobbyist for $160,000 and doesn't tell anyone uh, is known, and that, they, and that as this case drags on, that the, the public's not on the hook for, you know, continuing to pay him, even though uh, the original hiring was illegal. Now, it sounds like the paper has already got its mind made up that uh, the law was broken here. Uh, some people might say, well, wait a minute. Uh, is a Victoria advocate uh, judge and jury all in one, uh, or are you maintaining a, a perspective of an uh, unbiased and impartial uh, arbiter of the facts? Well, we certainly um, have, are strongly of the opinion that the law was broken, or we would not have gone to the considerable uh, expense and trouble to file the lawsuit. Um, and the district court judge in his initial ruling agreed with us enough that there was plenty of basis for it for it to go to trial. Um, so, yeah, we are in the position of defending the Open Meetings Act, and the, as we are all the time, the Texas Public Information Act, um, when we see uh, that public officials aren't aren't following it properly. So, yes, that's, that's our role. That's the fourth estate's role. That's what our founding fathers envisioned for us to do. Chris Cobbler is the editor and publisher of The Victoria Advocate. Mr. Cobbler, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Happy to do so. Thanks.
joining us once again with the Talk of Texas. It's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. Lots of reaction online to the show's top story. In Dallas, Russ Ingram tweets, I see Trump's chief of staff, John Kelly, is leaving. Is it just me or is there a revolving door for his cabinet and staff? And alluding to some of those previous departures, Eric Steele tweets, Can you imagine how great the eventual Rex Tillerson, John Kelly tell-all books will be? You know, David, Trump called Rex Tillerson, his former Secretary of State and former ExxonMobil uh, CEO, dumb as a rock on Twitter the other day. In Dallas, P.O.'d Dad tweets, We need a betting pool for just how long it takes for Trump to call John Kelly dumb, stupid, useless, etc. I'd take pretty good odds on that, probably. Hmm. Folks are also talking about Kelly's legacy as chief of staff. In Austin, Austin, Adam Best tweets, Good riddance, calling Kelly just as hateful, ignorant, and prejudiced as the man he worked for. The only difference between him and Trump was that he was better at pretending to have decency. Lots of people really debating uh, the role that Kelly played in Trump's presidency there, including his role in the family separation policy right. that so roiled uh, the, the, the U.S. Uh, over the summer. So. Lots of folks talking about that one online. I'll be back with more reactions from social media later in the show. We would love to know your perspective on this story or anything else that's making news in your neck of Texas. Tweet us, won't you, at Texas Standard, or you can join the conversation uh, on Facebook. Just look for Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar, back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from Great Texas Line Press, publisher of W.F. Strong's Stories from Texas. Some of them are true. At independent booksellers like River Oaks, The Twig, and Book People, as well as Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and Bucky's. Business in your money on The Standard. I'm David Brown. Don't know if you've heard the U.S. Geological Survey says there's much more oil in the Permian Basin than previously thought. Great news, perhaps, for the industry. Not so much safety on the road. While the region accounts for 2% of the population, it accounts for 10% of the state's traffic accidents. All the extra heavy truck traffic playing no small role. As part of Untapped, the Texas Standard's continuing coverage of changing West Texas, Marfa Public Radio's Mitch Borden reports on how the increase in accidents is taking a toll on first responders. Carol Jost opens the door to the volunteer EMS garage in Garden City and steps into the cool building. We have um, two ambulances at each station. They're always ready to go whenever we get a call. She's the emergency services administrator for Glasscock County and manages its 18 volunteer EMTs. It's clear from the layer of dirt on the ambulance's back doors they've been busy driving along dusty roads. On one, a hand-drawn message has been left on a window. Oh, what's that say? It says, wash me. <laughs> Glasscock County is about a half an hour drive from Midland. Not many people live here, but each day the population swells with transient workers because of fracking operations, Commercial traffic has been nonstop, and Joe says because of it, her team is seeing a lot more car crashes. These aren't fender bitters. These are violent, violent crashes. I mean, it looks like you've stomped on a tin can. For a long time, 911 calls for car wrecks and traumatic accidents were few and far between in Glasscock County. Volunteer EMTs had an easier time balancing their personal life with responding to emergencies. But now, the calls have more than doubled and you see the evidence strewn all over the side of the roads. Plenty of stuff off of cars, maybe from crashes, glass, metal, an actual neck brace, plastic gloves, broken taillights, a lot of broken taillights. 30% of all Glasscock County accidents happen here, 
the intersection of 137 and 158. The speed limit is high. It's easy to miss signs warning drivers to slow down, and these days, the roads are often backed up. It's a dangerous mix that happens all over the Permian Basin. I was coming home from work, and I was going about 75, I had cruise control going, and the truck in front of me just hits the brakes. Christian Olivares lives in Midland. He had a pretty close call just last month. All the traffic was backed up. I hit my brakes and my car skidded and I was about two inches away from that truck. And the truck behind me, he literally was about a hair away from me. Olivares caught a break that night, but he wasn't so lucky a few weeks before when a driver rammed into him at a stop sign and totaled his car. Crashes like these have jumped at an alarming rate, says James Beecham. He's president of the Midland-Odessa Transportation Alliance, a group that works to improve Permian Basin infrastructure. They found that in 2017, 63% more people died in car accidents than the year before. So a lot of what's driving that overall number of crashes and fatalities is the commercial motor vehicle aspect of it, and that goes directly back to the increased activity you're seeing. Carol Jost, the Glasscock County Emergency Services Administrator, says the cost of these wrecks are starting to pile up. The EMS department has to buy more medical supplies, the ambulances are burning more gas, and need more maintenance. And then just the strain on the volunteers, you know, getting burnt out, and uh, they're getting tired. For now, Jost is knocking on wood that things don't get worse. In Garden City, I'm Mitch Borden. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. When it comes to crops, Texas has one of the most diverse portfolios you'll find. But here's one commodity you won't find. Industrial hemp. The square cousin of marijuana has no psychoactive properties, mind you, but rather a whole range of practical applications for things like textiles, food, and fiber. Problem is that in most places, it's illegal to produce. But a bill currently being considered by Congress could change that, and it's got the support of Texas Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller. Commissioner, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Howdy. How are y'all? We're doing all right. Uh, I think a lot of people are surprised that you're back in this. Uh, why is hemp a crop that uh, Texas agriculture in particular could benefit from? Well, there's really no reason that uh, people should be surprised. I mean, it's something that there's no uh, THC, you know, well, there's very, very minute. You couldn't get high if you, you know, smoked the whole bale of hemp. But <laughs> hemp's been around a long, long time. Many of our, actually, many of our founding fathers made their fortunes growing hemp. George Washington was a hemp grower. Be another uh, tool in the tool belt for the, you know, Texas farmer. We have, you know, record low commodity prices, so an alternative crop would be welcomed, something that would actually maybe help the bottom line with a Texas farmer. Are you getting any pushback from conservatives who sort of feel that this might be a sort of a slippery slope? You know, so, so far I've only had support. I really haven't had uh, any pushback, especially for conservatives. It's actually uh, Republican Party platform supports this move. Well, now, let me ask you about this. Where do you stand on legalizing recreational marijuana, as other states have done? Because it does seem like there's a sort of a social political change that's uh, that's uh, taken hold in the nation right now. Well, I certainly don't want that. It's not something that would be beneficial for Texas. I've actually been to Colorado and uh, 
tour their, their operations up there and visited with their commissioner and, and their government officials. And what they're telling me is it really doesn't add anything to the bottom line for the government coffers. It's kind of a wash by the time they pay for all the oversight and, and the policing of that industry. It's uh, kind of wishes, you know, they hadn't have done it. Well, so what would hemp mean for Texas? Have you all done the math on this to see how much uh, uh, this crop might be worth? Well, I don't, I don't have any figures on it, but here, here's what it would do in a time of historically low prices. And currently, you know, our commodities are, are really not making any money. So this would be an alternative crop, not a replacement. We don't want to replace cotton, which is king in Texas or any of the other crops where we go. But it, it would give us an alternate crop, be an excellent rotational crop, which would be, you know, good for the soil. It, it does produce a, a lot of fiber, so a lot of compost that would be generated by a hemp crop. A lot of advantages, a lot of you know, good things to 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 have if we legalize growing hemp. Why did they get rid of it in the first place? You know, that's a good question. I think because it it, it became a problem because it will crossbreed uh, with marijuana and uh, produce you know uh, some uh, THC. So if it is legalized, there'll, there'll be parameters and tests you know have to be run. Uh, so it, it'll be a crop that will be monitored, I'm sure. Have Have you come around to uh, to hemp uh, over time, or is this have you always felt this way about hemp as a crop? You know, people think that I've I've been against it. I've really never ever been against it. You know, I'm always for the for the American farmer. It's it's you know it gets a bad rap because it's a close cousin to marijuana, but it's it's you know has none of the the psychotropic effects of marijuana. So. Uh, it's it's something that's this grown worldwide. It's, it's it's not a you know something that we should be uh, afraid of as a society. You think it's going to happen? Uh, maybe a what in a year or or what, what? You have any idea about a timetable, perhaps? Well, it could happen as much as quick as next week. Uh, there's a provision in the farm bill which we're trying to get passed and encourage our Texas delegation to kick that out before the new you know Congress starts. So. Uh, from what they tell me, it's a good possibility that this may happen. We've been talking about uh, hemp and the possibility of growing it in Texas. Texas Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller would like to see that happen. Commissioner Miller, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Anytime. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, a statewide network of physicians treating more than 50,000 new cancer patients each year with technology and cancer-fighting care options. More at TexasOncology.com. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. A winter storm that swept through the southern United States blanketed Lubbock in 10 inches of snow Saturday. Jen Daniel is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Lubbock. She says the snowfall was a welcome change from the last two seasons, which only saw an inch of powder. We did have our big blizzard back in 2015, and since then we've just not seen uh, much in the way of snow. So I think a lot of people really enjoyed this. Daniel says so many people were building snowmen. They were basically snow families. And of course, they were Texas sized. They were, um, you know, five, six. Um, I, in fact, I even saw one that was eight feet tall right across from my house. While the snow is now melting, this weekend's 10-inch deluge lands Lubbock ahead of other cities you would likely associate with the white stuff, including Denver and Minneapolis, which have seen roughly seven inches of snow apiece this winter season. 
The Air Force repeatedly failed to report information that may have prevented the ex-airman who killed 26 people at First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs from purchasing a gun. Texas Public Radio's Carson Frame has more on these findings. The Defense Department's Inspector General says the Air Force had four chances to turn Devin Kelly's fingerprints into the FBI and two opportunities to submit his final disposition report. The failures range from 2011, when the Air Force began investigating Kelly for domestic violence, to 2012, when he was convicted by court-martial. Adam Skaggs of the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence says the report reveals systemic problems within DOD. What this report gives us is a much more nuanced, much more detailed picture of exactly where and how the breakdown uh, in the legal process occurred. The other takeaway is that these breakdowns occurred again and again in the case of this shooter. Now the Office of Inspector General says it's looking into how DOD agencies are supposed to report information to the FBI. Carson Frame, Texas Public Radio News. A Houston scientist is officially getting his hands on his Nobel Prize medal today in Sweden. James P. Allison is an immunologist at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. The ceremony was held in Stockholm today. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you all to this year's Nobel Prize Award Ceremony. It was announced back in October that Allison and Japanese immunologist Tosuko Hanjo would receive the 2018 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. The two were sharing the honor for their discovery of cancer therapies that stimulate the immune system to attack tumor cells. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Fort Lonesome. Texas-based, chain-stitch embroidery design, and tailor-made custom western wear on Instagram and at ftlonesome.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. We all know the population of Texas is growing. That's not just because of migration from other states and countries, mind you. It's also because Texans are giving birth to new Texans. The U.S. Census Bureau says for each year between 2010 and 2016, Texas added about 211,000 through what they call natural increase. But bringing those new Texans into this world can be especially hard for those who live in rural areas. Now, 40 years ago, nearly all the state's rural hospitals delivered babies, but today it's less than half, just 40 percent, in fact. As part of our Spotlight on Health project, Natalie Krebs looks at why these units are closing and how this has affected rural Texans. Nurse Jennifer Sanders had long seen trouble ahead for the birthing unit at St. Mark's Hospital in LaGrange, about an hour east of Austin. We'd heard rumors, you know, that they were going to be closing, and we'd had a staff meeting probably about a year prior to the actual closure of the unit. When it actually happened, Sanders lost her job, and so did about a dozen other nurses. She says she was devastated, and so was the rest of the town of about 4,500. The community in itself was in an uproar. They were very angry, and, and people were like trying to offer suggestions, and of course by that point it was too late. Sanders says the closure meant many pregnant patients now have to travel an hour away to places like Austin and Houston for care and delivery. And the same is happening all over the state. Over the last uh, three, four years, I would estimate probably uh, 10 rural hospitals have ceased that service, and we're at a point now where only 68 of the 161 rural hospitals in Texas still deliver babies. Don McBath is with the Organization of Rural and Community Hospitals. He says there's a number of reasons for the unit closures, including increasing regulations and a shortage of doctors in rural areas. 
but a lot of it comes down to money. And the biggest culprit is... State Medicaid plan, which is supposed to, per directives in the legislature, pay rural hospitals at cost for Medicaid patients, uh, is in fact paying them about 70 cents on the dollar. McBeth says this is a big issue because Medicaid funds up to 70% of births in rural hospitals. So it, it creates a real problem if in 70% of the deliveries that hospital is losing on every delivery, thousands and thousands of dollars, they just they can't sustain that. Money was one of the reasons that Rice Medical Center in Eagle Lake closed its birthing unit this summer. Of the 28 babies born there in 2017, 21 were funded by Medicaid. Hospital CEO Jim Danik says after a three-year review, the hospital's board decided the unit was just too expensive for the community's aging population. With the elimination of those services and the elimination of the need to have to have 24-7 specialized nursing, anesthesia, and physician care, the hospital immediately saved a tremendous amount of money. Hospital officials at St. Mark's in LaGrange also cited financial issues related to Medicaid. But nurse Jennifer Sanders says when her unit closed, it was also down to just one doctor. So our deliveries dropped to probably, you know, around 18 to 20 a month. You know, and that was that was a lot for her to be able to handle as well, since she was the only one doing it. The Texas Organization of Rural and Community Hospitals says more than half of Texas counties have no obstetrician or gynecologist. And University of Minnesota professor Katie Cosimanel says there are consequences when smaller, more remote counties lose these services. Cosimanel says her 10-year study on this issue found OB unit closures in these counties correlated with an increase in babies born prematurely. That is really important because preterm birth is the largest risk factor for infant mortality. And we know from data from the CDC that rural infants have a higher infant mortality rate than urban infants. And this may be one of the reasons why. She says another problem is that women were going to fewer prenatal care appointments. It stands to reason if you have to drive much further to get to your prenatal care visits, you may be going in less often. That's in the midst of Texas making headlines for high maternal mortality rates. Cosimondo says to address rural birthing care, the focus should be on two things. The first is supporting rural hospitals that still provide OB services. And she says the second is to find a way to provide resources for those counties that have either lost their units or aren't populated enough to sustain them. We have all kinds of protocols in place for emergency um, cardiac care if you have a heart attack. We should do that for births, too. That's something Democratic State Representative Barbara Gervin-Hawkins of San Antonio has proposed. Her bill would create a committee that would evaluate reimbursement rates. But what will actually happen remains to be seen. Gervin Hawkins filed a similar bill last session, and it never made it out of committee. I'm Natalie Krebs for the Texas Standard. You got a specialization in math, maybe science, special ed? How about uh, bilingual or English as a second language? Well, Texas schools need you, but teachers, you know how tough that first year can be. In fact, it's so tough, many teachers after that year one decide not to come back how do you keep teachers at school we're going to explore next as the standard continues support for texas standard comes from rand group partnering with sap to deliver business by design project management solutions to help cross-functional teams monitor projects in real time more at softwareispromised.com
Hey, it's Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. The National Institutes of Health estimate about 1% of U.S. adults live with schizophrenia. It's a mental disorder that can make people seem like they've lost touch with reality at times. A San Antonio researcher is trying to figure out what causes the disease. Most people are diagnosed as teenagers or young adults. That was certainly the case with an Alamo City man who's striving to live a life of purpose with schizophrenia. Texas Public Radio's Bonnie Petrie introduces us to him now. Fonda White was a football standout at Marshall High School on the north side. He dreamed of becoming a professional football player. But in his 20s, those dreams were shattered when he started hearing voices. A lot of voices, a lot of, a lot of seeing things, paranoia, you know, those kind of symptoms coming up was, was when it fully blown when I was age 25. White didn't understand what was happening to him, and it scared him, so he tried to ignore it. Well, at the time I was playing for a minor league professional football team, I was still in school, but the symptoms just kept coming up over and over again, you know. So a lot of times I wouldn't go to class or I wouldn't go to work or practice or things like that. So it was a very dark time. White was diagnosed with schizophrenia, a chronic psychiatric disorder that impacts how a person thinks, feels, and behaves. More than three million Americans have the disorder. Daniel Lodge is an associate professor of pharmacology at UT Health San Antonio. He explains there are three types of symptoms. So things like hallucinations, delusions, and paranoia called positive symptoms. Patients also have different types of negative symptoms, and these reflect a loss of function. So things like social isolation, social withdrawal, and their emotions can be flat. And then on top of that, there can be some cognitive alterations as well. Lodge's research team is trying to pinpoint what exactly goes wrong in the nervous system of a person with schizophrenia. And if they can figure that out, it may lead to new treatments, including one they're testing that uses stem cells and another that uses gene therapy. The drugs that we have um, have been around for 50 plus years and haven't changed much. And when they work, they work well. But what we really need is to come up with alternatives for the people that they don't work well for. It took White four years to find a treatment that eased his symptoms, and he says it was a rough four years. There are times I, I threw away my medicine because it made me feel a certain way or, or whatnot, but um, my faith and, and, and knowing that I have a purpose, that kind of made me want to keep going and keep fighting. And what was that purpose? I want people to say that because of you, I didn't give up. You inspired me to keep going when I was at a dark place. And I just want people just to know that that you can get through it. Now, White spends his time talking to groups and on social media about his disease, hoping to reduce the stigma that surrounds mental illness. Reporting for the Texas Standard, I'm Bonnie Petrie. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. Each year across the Lone Star State, about 10% of teachers decide not to return to their jobs. That according to the Texas Education Agency. In Dallas ISD, for example, the farewell rate has been as high as 20% after that first year. School districts and others are trying to change all that. As KERA Stella Chavez reports, there's something that could make the difference between a new teacher staying or quitting. Ivory Smith reads from a children's picture book to a group of fifth graders. Chrysanthemum took the longest route to school. I know what she was like because she didn't like them to bully her name. Uh-huh. Yep. 
The book called Chrysanthemum is about a young mouse who gets teased about her name. Smith is a teacher in training in a class in the Richardson School District. She's part of the Dallas Teacher Residency, which pairs student teachers with mentor teachers inside urban schools for an entire school year. Smith and other student teachers spend four days a week in a classroom and another day taking graduate-level courses through Texas A&M Commerce. Next year, she gets her own class. Smith's working in a bilingual class in RASD Academy. It's one of the lowest performing campuses in the Richardson School District. Nearly 95% of students are economically disadvantaged. Smith likes the experience because it's more practical than what she got in school. When you're in college, especially undergrad, you're kind of secluded and you're only around this specific dichotomy of people, right? You're with adults who are either studying with you or you're with adults who are teaching you. Smith's learning from Vanessa Andrade, her mentor teacher. Andrade takes the lead in lesson planning, teaching the class, and analyzing student testing data. Andrade says the goal is to get Smith to eventually take on some of these tasks. A mentor is supposed to be invested in the resident's learning. So making sure that Ivory's needs are met and anything that she wants, any goals that she wants to set for herself, that we're meeting those goals and that she's feeling comfortable not only on a daily basis, but also in terms of her schoolwork. The Dallas Teacher Residency Program, which launched in 2013, places teachers in the Dallas, Richardson, and Mesquite school districts. It splits the costs with the districts in Texas A&M Commerce. The residency intentionally places student teachers inside high-need schools. Rob DeHaas, co-founder and CEO of Dallas Teacher Residency, says he supports this approach because of his own experience. As the former director of Uplift Heights Preparatory in West Dallas, DeHaas interviewed a lot of job candidates. Many of them had experience working in suburban and wealthy school districts. A lot of times in traditional or alternative settings, new teachers will get the keys to their classroom right away and be thrown into a incredibly challenging situation or setting with very little training. And even if they have had training, a lot of times that training doesn't mirror the demographic of students. And that puts teachers at risk of feeling frustrated and leaving the job. Alexandra Level is Associate Dean for Educator Preparation at the University of North Texas. She says getting the right kind of training is critical to keeping teachers in the classroom. Those first two and three years, that's where a teacher really begins to you know, get in their groove and be able to impact students. And so if we're losing teachers after the first two years, we're getting the jobs filled, but we're not keeping people in the profession. And so retention is huge. Back in the classroom, Ivory Smith is asking kids about the book Chrysanthemum. What was the point when everything turned around, right? People started liking her name. Why? Because they said it was like a flower. Smith says her year-long experience in the classroom is invaluable. And this program is like, you all need to be hands-on. You all need to plan this lesson. You need to teach this lesson. You're going to be observed. And so it kind of intensifies everything that we're doing. That can kind of be like nerve-wracking, but it's also my motivator. It's motivated her to one day lead her own classroom in Dallas. I'm Stella Chavez for the Texas Standard.
Firefighters will tell you no fire is exactly the same, but a team of Houston-area firefighters got quite the surprise Saturday morning while responding to a house fire in Conroe. After extinguishing the blaze, they discovered scores of snakes in the home's second-story bedroom. Live snakes, not just hanging out in the rafters. These were pets, apparently. The Houston Chronicle reports that the firefighters were able to rescue 100 snakes, though some lizards perished in the fire, according to Montgomery County Fire Chief Raymond Flannelly. Authorities say they found a charred Christmas tree, which may have sparked the blaze, but the cause has not yet been confirmed. No humans were harmed in the blaze. Coming up on 49 Minutes Past the Hour, Texas Standard Times. A whole lot more ahead. Stay with us. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us on this Monday. Here's a story that seems to have become more commonplace. Allegations of sexual abuse spanning decades at houses of worship. Well, now, in a four-part series, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reports its findings of over 400 cases of sexual misconduct among independent fundamental Baptist churches. These allegations cover over 40 states and even Canada. Sarah Smith is the lead investigative reporter for the Star-Telegram, and she joins us now. Sarah, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us what's going on and what you and your team discovered. The thrust of our main finding is that it's quite prevalent in these churches. And much of the reason is because there is a culture of fear that's permeated by the pastors. So people are afraid to leave the church, afraid to speak up against their pastor because that feels like you're speaking up against God and a strict hierarchy that puts the pastor on top and uh, women and children at the very bottom. Tell me why you chose to look at these uh, independent fundamental Baptist churches. Had you heard reports in the past or did someone come to the uh, Star-Telegram or what, what happened? I kind of stumbled into it, actually. I got very curious when there were two arrests within a week of each other at Open Door Baptist Church in Mesquite, Texas, for child sexual abuse. Turns out their old pastor had had a history of sexual assaults to the point that he wound up hanging himself in a West Virginia jail. And I thought, okay, this is kind of a lot for a relatively small church. Maybe it's bad luck. Maybe it's a cultural problem. So I started digging around in that one church and people from there began pointing me to other churches, and it snowballed from there. What is the church structure or hierarchy like? Is there a central body of, of fundamental Baptist churches, or, or, uh, or what? The independent fundamental Baptist movement doesn't have any hierarchy. They, One of the tenets of being an independent fundamental Baptist church is that you're not affiliated technically with any other church. Um, it's pretty much the opposite of that top-down, strictly controlled Roman Catholic church structure. I think that the um, lack of denominational structure, in the same way that the Roman Catholic denominational structure allowed this to happen, the lack of structure here also allows it to happen. There's nobody holding anybody accountable. However, these churches do form this informal network with their Bible colleges, summer camps, uh, preachers' conferences. So there's enough of affiliation there to allow alleged abusers to be shuffled out from church to church. And I think this can happen 
at any church. And this is also isn't to say that every independent fundamental Baptist church is a hotbed of sexual abuse. How have the churches responded when you've approached them with your uh, uh, with these allegations? Most of them haven't responded. I called everyone in the stories, and some people issued a blanket no comment, and I would follow up with very specific written questions, and I would send them to their church address, home address, personal email, church email, what have you, and mostly those just went ignored. And what about police? Some of the cases have been investigated by the police or in the process of investigation. Others are long outside the statute of limitations. You've talked with many of the survivors and you even have uh, interview videos on your website. What was it like speaking with them? It seems like many of them were open and willing to talk. The survivors were remarkably open. It was extremely difficult for them to talk. I mean, not only is overcoming sexual abuse and being able to speak about that extremely difficult, but it's extremely difficult after getting out of this tightly controlled church setting to even begin to talk about it. But the overarching philosophy that I think got a, had a lot of them willing to put that aside to talk to me was, I had to go through something so horrible, and I hope that this stops one more person from being in that same situation. Obviously, your Fort Worth news uh, organization, uh, Fort Worth-based news organization, why dig so deep and, and far and wide? Because the story warranted it. I don't think that you have to be the New York Times or the Washington Post to be able to do a national story. We found the original story in Texas, and the, we just followed the threads. And I think that shows that the power still of local papers. We've been speaking with Sarah Smith. She is the lead investigative reporter for the Star-Telegram, and we'll have a link to her latest at texasstandard.org. Sarah, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And you were listening to The Texas Standard. He is monitoring the talk of Texas on this Monday, our social media editor, that is, Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. Hello. We're hearing from folks about that story we just heard from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reporting on those more than 400 cases of rape and sexual misconduct it uncovered among fundamental independent Baptist churches. Allegations. Allegations, we should say. On our Facebook page, Mary Ann Hart Morrow applauds that reporting and says, unfortunately, until lately, it has only been widely acknowledged as a Catholic problem when it is across every religion. And Christine Basildura, Basildura, excuse me, says it's true. I experienced it personally in the Baptist church I grew up in. Sorry to say, but all denominations have evil amongst them. She goes on to call it shameful for a person in a trusted position to harm you in that way, and even more shameful, the parishioners who will defend them until the end. Obviously, uh, very important work that they've done there at the Star-Telegram, telling the story and uh, reporting on it. Indeed. Also hearing from our friends about another story in the show, that from Sid Miller and his interesting stance there in support of industrial hemp production uh, here uh, in Texas. Texas Texas, uh, could make some money off of this. Yeah, definitely. And that's what uh, some people are noting and and finding pretty interesting there. Jerry Harp on our Facebook page asks, why is this even debatable? Hemp has a thousand uses and no downside. He predicts that the major operation will likely be from timber interests in East Texas. Interesting. Major uh, opposition, you mean? Yeah, opposition. Yes, sir. Uh, Paul Miller finds it strange to agree with Miller on anything. You know, Miller is a very conservative uh, sort of firebrand there uh, with many people on the left, but uh, uh, applauds him on this uh, instance here. And Philip White 
says, as we continue to adopt pro-hemp and marijuana-neutral political and business stances, which is good, we really need to dedicate some active effort to no longer destroying the lives of young black men over the same, referring there to uh, marijuana policies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it is interesting because, you know, this industrial hemp, it has no psychoactive qualities. I think the commissioner there said you could smoke a bale of it mm-hmm. and still not yep. Uh, yep. get any effect. But it is, uh, in many ways, still, uh, you know, classified similarly. And uh, the politics there... Uh, are are interesting because it is so closely affiliated uh, with marijuana. Which you know, I would like to know what the backstory is because clearly this was hemp was grown in the United States, as uh, as uh, Sid Miller said uh, back. uh, uh, Founding fathers, many of them grew hemp back in the day. So, be interesting to go back in time and find out just why it was it was banned in so many. Uh, states. That would be a very interesting investigation. I'm sure our friends and listeners at home might have their own uh, suggestions that they can <laughs> tweet to us yeah. or uh, holler at us on Facebook. You know, we're hearing from uh, other folks there about yet another story, that uh, interesting story about the closure of rural hospitals, the rise of OBGYNs right. to take the place. Daniel Hernandez says folks living in the Big Bend area have been facing difficult access to hospital care for decades. If you're in Valentine, you're about 45 minutes from the closest hospital. So obviously another important story Uh, that folks are talking about this Monday. We are out of time for the big broadcast, but the news continues online at texasstandard.org. We encourage you to stop by over there. And, of course, we're going to be back on the air this time tomorrow. We hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard team, I'm David Brown, wishing you a marvelous Monday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington Family. PRI Public Radio International.